My name is Heidi, and I love stories. Funny stories, sad stories, and what on earth just happened stories. As it turns out, the Bible is full of them. And after two decades in Sunday school and a master's in English, I'm here to tell them to you. Get ready. This is Messy Scripture. You may recall that the Israelites are now stuck in the wilderness for 40 years. You would think that they would immediately be on their best behavior and remain on aforementioned best behavior in hope that they could get out of the punishment early, or at least as like a, oops, we messed up and maybe we'll make it better. But no, 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 no. They are not going to make it better. In fact, almost immediately, a man named Korah led a rebellion against Moses and Aaron, and he teamed up with some other people. The long and short of it is that Korah was a Levite, and while all priests were Levites, not all Levites were priests, it's not that complicated. And Korah was like, all of us are holy, we're all God's chosen people, so how come Moses and Aaron are in charge? And more importantly, how come Moses is acting like a prince and blah 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 and really riling up the people that Moses was somehow being unjust to them, that Aaron was somehow being unjust to them by being the high priest. Moses is upset at this because he has never cheated Korah or anyone in his clans out of anything, ever. And the accusation is ridiculous. That being said, they stir up a huge thing, and there's about 250 Levites who want proof that Aaron is God's chosen one. Once again, these guys are also whipping up the same old, same old complaint of Moses leading them out of Egypt and into the wilderness where they are all going to die. A thing that, to be clear, has not happened yet, except when they are doing something so boneheadedly stupid that God punishes them, you know, for their boneheaded stupidity. This new complaint that's a repackaged version of the old one really pisses everyone off. So God tells Moses to have the people do two things, to have the people who are complaining, the 250 men that Korah and Dathan and Ibrahim have whipped up into a frenzy to have them offer incense to God in these bronze censers that that they all had. And it would become abundantly clear whose incense God wanted. He was also furious with these guys that were leading the rebellion and was like, I'm just going to burn them up right now. And Moses was like, please don't hurt anyone else. Like one man should not lead to the punishment of the entire people. So God has Moses order everyone else to get away from their tents Like, they're supposed to be in their dwelling, but everybody else needs to get as far away from them as they can, like, within the the confines of the camp. Moses gives this stirring, epic speech that boils down to, if I am not God's chosen one, these men will die of natural causes in a natural manner. If I am God's chosen one, the ground itself will open and swallow them alive, and they will disappear from the face of the earth. As soon as Moses stopped talking, the ground split open and everything that they had, the three men, Dathan, Ibrahim, and of course Korah, and their families and their tents were swallowed into the earth and covered. Like, this was not just a sinkhole. This was a sinkhole that then closed back over them, it sounds like, which is insane. That doesn't normally happen. And they were, in the eyes of the Israelites, dragged immediately to Sheol, which is not quite the same thing as hell. It's closer to our concept of what Hades might be like. And now these men were taken there with their families alive because they were rebelling against Aaron and Moses. This is something that God has never done before. And as far as I can recall, although we'll find out over the course of this podcast, is not something that ever happens again. This is a one-off. The ground opens and swallows them alive because they will not obey. You might recall the burning bush where God's presence manifested as fire, but the bush didn't burn. Well, that doesn't happen here. The men holding the censers, who are not Aaron and his family, are burned to a crisp immediately as they offer the incense, all 250 of them. 
Then God tells Moses and Aaron to use the censers to create bronze plates to cover the altar because having been used in the context that they were used in and having been anointed in God's holy fire, they are now holy. And everybody kind of got the message sort of at this point, but God wanted to really drive it home that, uh, yes, Moses and Aaron are the ones he has selected to lead the people. Moses is their leader and Aaron as their high priest and his sons as the other priests. To do that, he has the chief of every single tribe bring a staff with the tribe's name, the father's name on it. So one for Reuben, one for Judah, one for Benjamin, and on Levi's staff to write the name of Aaron. And God is like, I'm going to do something. I'm going to make one of these staffs that is like, it's a stick. It's a stick. He's going to make one of them bloom with flowers, and that will be the clear and concise answer about who God's anointed one is in a less violent, less earth-opening kind of way. Like, I cannot overemphasize how bizarre this would look. The earth rips open. What kind of story is this? And fire bursts out from the censers, and now God is like, in case it was unclear, I am going to make new life come from a dead staff. Everybody bring the family name stick. Moses puts all 12 staffs into the tent of meeting, and the next day when he goes in to check on them, Aaron's staff, and only Aaron's staff, is not only covered in blossoms, it also is bearing ripe almonds. It's budding and blooming and bearing fruit, and that is the clearest message that has been sent to the Hebrews so far, that God did not accidentally anoint Aaron. It was on purpose, and this whole rebellion fails miserably. That being said, it will not surprise you that the Israelites once again complain about food and water while they're in the wilderness. You would think they would get tired of this complaint, but evidently they do not. Moses and Aaron go to the tent of meeting and fall flat on their faces before the Lord, who then tells them that he will provide them with water to drink. The last time God did this, he had Moses hit the rock with a stick. This time he tells Moses to go up to a large rock and to speak to it, and by speaking to it alone, water would come out of it. These are not the same directions, although this story sounds very similar to the last time. Moses does not follow directions. Moses gathers everybody together before the rock and is like, listen up, you stupid rebels. You think I can make water come out of this rock? And then he hits it twice, and boom, water gushes out. However, God is not happy with Moses because he disobeyed orders. Moses kind of took credit for this. He doesn't say that God's going to bring water from the rock. He says, shall we do it? And then hits it. And God is like, because of what you have done, because you have not listened to me, you will not go into the promised land. Someone else is going to have to lead the Israelites into the land of Canaan, where they will do their conquesting. But it won't be Moses. Moses lost that right. Right there at Meribah, where he doesn't follow God's orders to speak to the rock and instead does the same thing he did way, way, way back when they were first leaving Egypt and hits the rock. Shortly thereafter, the Israelites are unable to cross through the land of Edom and have to go all the way around because Edom refuses them passage. And while they're on that journey, Aaron, the brother of Moses, dies. Before the whole assembly of Israel, Aaron takes off his priestly garments and they are put on his son Eliezer by Moses. Then Aaron climbs up Mount Hor and atop the mountain he dies. He knew when he was going to die and he was able to die kind of on his own terms. It's a unique blessing that's given to more than one person in the Bible, either to ascend without dying, that only happens like twice, or to know when they are going to die and to be able to die peacefully, as much as death can be. When Aaron died, Israel wept and mourned for him for 30 days. After the 30 days passed, 
A particular king, the king of Arad, got upset with Israel for, I don't know, existing and for coming close to his border. He goes out with an army, fights the Israelites, takes a bunch of them captive, and Israel's like, Lord, don't make us have this. And they promise to destroy all of the king's cities. They won't take any plunder. They will destroy them wholesale if God helps them rescue their fellow their fellow Israelites. And God does. So the king of Arad is wiped off the face of the earth along with his settlements. And the Israelites who were captured are rescued by their brethren. This is where Israel starts to kind of pick up the warfare pace. So you're going to hear a lot about these little short battles. Keep in mind that the original generation, the one that had lived in Egypt, had never fought in a war before. This new generation is going to have to take Canaan. And they're going to start getting trained by God through other kings attacking them to become the warrior nation that they need to be if they're going to conquer Canaan at all. In case you got excited and thought that the Israelites were going to have confidence in God because he had just delivered them from the king of Arad and because there had been a clear and peaceful transition of priesthood from Aaron to Eliezer, you're wrong, you're wrong. They complain again, surprise. They begin complaining that the journey is taking too long and they once again pick up with this no food, no water crap as though God is not providing them manna every single day. Keep that in mind. Like all of this, there's no food complaints. There's manna every morning, except for on the Sabbath, on the ground. They are eating bread from heaven and they are incapable of being grateful for it. They're just like, there's no food, there's no water, this is taking too long. And God sends poisonous snakes into the camp and these snakes start bite, 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 biting. And Moses is like, please don't kill us all. If this prayer of Moses is sounding familiar, it should. After all, this is not the first time that the Israelites have complained at God in a very aggressive sort of rebellion way and God has punished them for it. Also try to keep in mind as these punishments are happening that they have already promised more than once that they will obey God. Also, he is very much manifesting his physical presence. It's not like they can be like, oh, but where is God? It's like he's over there in that cloud, literally right over there, leading us around the wilderness. Can we all please calm down? But evidently they can't. I've actually also kind of skimmed a couple plagues because there's just a lot. This group does not listen. But Moses asks God to please not kill everyone. And God's like, okay, make a bronze serpent, put it on a staff, and erect it in the center of the camp so that anyone who looks at it can live. And now the impetus is back on the people. If they want to survive these snake bites, they have to be willing to look for help to the bronze snake that is lifted into the air. And a lot of them do until eventually the snakes go away. This bronze serpent isn't going to come up for several hundred more years, but it is a very cool little miraculous thing God did where it's like, you don't have to die of these snake bites, but you do have to look to the snake. You do have to look up. Also, for those of you who are history buffs, that's why ambulances have a snake wrapped around a staff on them. One of the signs of medicine and life-saving medicine in particular is a serpent wrapped around a staff. And it comes from this story. After that, two more kings, the king of Sihon and the king of Og, are both defeated by Israel in battle. They definitely pick the fights. Israel does not. And neither of them let Israel cross through their land. Is basically the heart of the conflict. Israel's like, we don't want to plunder. We don't want to take anything. We just want to walk right straight through. And they're like, no! And then Israel's like, okay. And there's a war. This war winning on the part of Israel is not logical. And everybody around is starting to get the sense that there is a God, a very powerful God, that is behind the Israelites' victories. Moab, the nation, is now afraid of the Israelites. And the prince of Moab, Balak, summons a prophet, Balaam, 
to curse the Israelites because he realizes that this is not a human on human kind of affair. Balak knows that the only way to defeat Israel is to defeat Israel's God. And the only way to defeat Israel's God, he assumes, is to get Balaam to curse them. And Balaam's like, okay, I'll do my best, but I can't say anything that God doesn't put in my mouth. And Balak's like, yeah, 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 I'll pay you as long as you come. Balaam agrees to go. He agrees to go and meet with Balak. God is not particularly happy with the choice Balaam has made here. And Balaam, while riding on his donkey to go meet with Balak to go curse the Israelites, is having trouble getting the donkey to go where he wants it to go. Like, it keeps laying down or kind of going off kilter or just stopping in the middle of the road. And at one point, it crushes Balaam's foot against a wall. And Balaam starts beating the donkey like, what are you doing? I have a place to be. I need to go. I need to go meet with Balak. And the donkey turns and looks to him and says, why are you beating me? I'll say that again in case you missed it. Balaam is beating his donkey for being, you know, an ass. And the donkey looks at him and says, what are you doing? out of its own mouth. What Balaam hadn't realized is that the donkey could see the angel of the Lord standing in the road, the road that didn't have enough space for both the donkey and the angel, and that the angel was definitely going to kill Balaam. So the donkey has now rescued this idiot of a prophet who's beating it on the side of the road, and Balaam answers the question like it's normal. He's like, I was beating you because you're not listening. And the donkey's like, have I ever not listened before? I've been such a good donkey to you. The only reason I'm doing this is because there's an angel in the middle of the road and I don't want us to die. And Balaam looks up and behold, an angel in the middle of the road. The angel's like, you are lucky that you have a smart donkey because the donkey saw me and stopped and I definitely would have killed you if you had continued. And Balaam's like, I am so sorry. If what I'm doing's the wrong call, I won't go. And the angel's like, you may go. You may go forward and meet with Balak. However, you will only say the things that I tell you to say. And so Balaam does. But when he meets with Balak, it doesn't go the way that Balak thinks it will go. Balaam offers sacrifices to God and then begins an oracle. His prophecy goes something along the lines of, I can't curse the Israelites because God has blessed them. How great is that for them and how bad is that for you? And Balak is like, what are you doing? I told you to curse them and here you are blessing them. And Balaam's like, I told you I can't curse people that God hasn't cursed and God hasn't cursed them. Balak's like, try again, try again, try again. Let's, let's go somewhere else and try again. So he does. And guess what comes out of his mouth? Not a prophecy of curse. No, no. Balaam once again blesses Israel. And really, he's just repeating the blessings that God has already given. This happens a third time. And at that point, Balak gives up. I mean, Israel's doing a sketchy job of obeying God, but uh, God has laid out for them in the law, which you can find in Leviticus and and some other places uh, throughout Numbers and such, and the end of Exodus, what happens if they disobey and what happens if they obey. And actually getting attacked by enemies is usually not the first thing on the list. God tends to clean house from the inside first. So at this point, There's no way that Balaam can curse them. Balak realizes this, and they both go their own separate ways. That being said, Israel's perfectly capable of cursing itself. Israelite men start sleeping with Moabite women. Not only are they having sexy time with them, but they are also offering sacrifices to Baal, who is the worst. You're going to hear a lot about Baal throughout the uh, Old Testament. Let's just get one thing clear. Baal sacrifice is bad, just all kinds of awful things. And the Israelites are not, again, intermarrying, which would be one thing. But no, they're just banging. Like, they're just having sex. And they're offering sacrifices. And 
Surprise, God is not happy with this. He's already made it clear that he doesn't want images of himself and he doesn't want them worshiping other gods. And Baal is like the worst. God commands Moses to have all of the leaders of Israel hung and to have all of the people who slept with any Moabite women killed. They gather around and the people are freaking out about how serious this punishment is going to be because this is going to be real bad. When I say real bad, I mean God sends a plague and a lot of people are dying real fast. Right as everybody is getting really into the crying and saying we're sorry part of Israel messing up, one of the Israelite men brings a Midianite woman to his family outside the tent of meeting. It's real bad. Like, this is real, real bad. And Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, who's the high priest... By the way, remember Eliezer, the son of Aaron? We talked about this. This is the same episode. It's just a long one. Phineas sees this and he is so angry with a righteous rage that he picks up a spear and kills them both with one thrust. And God is like, Phineas gets it. Phineas understands what's going on. And because Phineas was jealous for the worship of me, because Phineas made sure that I got all the worship and that this behavior was seen as unacceptable, I am giving his family the perpetual priesthood. That's right. All of the high priests of Israel come from Aaron because of what Phineas does right here. Nevertheless, 24,000 people did die in this particular plague. The only reason that what Phineas did stopped it, I think, is because God saw that there were still people who were standing up for him. More importantly, the people saw it. It's not like God didn't know, but now everybody knows. Phineas is on God's side and the priesthood is not corrupted yet. We'll get there eventually. Remember how at the beginning of last episode, God took a census of all of the people of Israel and arranged the camp? Well, he orders a new census. This new census is going to be for the new generation because whether or not they're ready for it, it's time to go to the promised land. It's been 40 years now and they need to get there. As the census is continuing, Reuben and Gad, the tribes, asked to settle in Gilead and the people finally come to the conclusion of, yeah, you guys can settle down in Gilead and not proper Canaan as long as you promise to come along with us when we fight for Canaan. And they're like, yeah, absolutely. The census is completed. That also means that it's time to find a new leader because Moses isn't allowed to lead them into Canaan. That also has been made clear by God. Chosen to take Moses' place is Joshua, the Hamilton of the bunch, and a very, very loyal PA. Also, Joshua has spent a lot of time in God's presence, and he is a loyal servant. He was one of the 12 spies of Israel who went out 40 years ago to scout Canaan, and one of the only two, along with Caleb, who didn't friggin' think that God couldn't do anything about, you know, the people being in Canaan. So Joshua is chosen as the replacement for Moses. The book of Deuteronomy is Moses' closing speech to Israel. He recounts the law and their history, reminds them of, Look at where we are, look at where we've started. And also a reminder of just how badly things will go for them if they don't obey God, and how well things will go for them if they do. This is the contract Israel had agreed to. This is the covenant that they made. And Moses is reminding them of the terms one last time. I'm sorry, I can't stop with the references. He and God teach Israel how to say goodbye. God won't allow Moses into the promised land, even though Moses begs. And instead, Joshua has made the new leader. On the border, before they begin the conquest of Canaan, Moses climbs up a mountain because God is going to let him see the whole of the promised land just from outside. God opens Moses' eyes and he sees the land that his people are going to possess. The people that he has led around the desert for over 40 years. The people who have broken his brain and broken his back, but never his spirit, never his mind. Moses sees the glory that will come. And then he dies on the mountain. And Israel mourns their greatest leader. There will be many people who follow in Moses' footsteps, leading the nation of Israel. However, 
very few of them will be able to stand up quite so thoroughly or quite so well against the temptation to become just like everybody else, because that's the promise, that they won't. With Moses gone, Joshua is going to have to lead this particular group of people, you know, the rebellion every five minutes people, into a long and bloody conquest of the land of Canaan. That story begins in the book of Joshua, and that's in fact where we're going to pick up season two of Messy Scripture. You might have noticed that the episodes have been coming out twice a week. Now that we've gotten through the first five books of the Bible, which, by the way, are called the Pentateuch, it means five books, I'm going to switch to once a week episodes, and there will be a very, very, very short hiatus between the end of season one and the beginning of season two. While you're waiting for the season to start, you might, you know, catch up on reading. It's only a few hundred pages. And seriously, there's a lot of stories that we're not going to be able to get to. This is a very long book. There's a lot of really cool things that happen. I'm just trying to hit the big highlights or the things that I think get overlooked that really shouldn't. I hope you guys are enjoying the show. Please leave a review and please share it because once season two gets started, it's going to be real exciting. Season one you could think of as the season of origins. Season two is a continuation of the growing pains we see starting in numbers. I can't wait to see you then.